0: Knowledge Products presents the World's Political Hotspots on the Golden Triangle.
1: In May 1991, three men met in China's capital, Beijing, to discuss one of the most important issues facing the world today. How could they stem the flow of illicit narcotics from Southeast Asia's Golden Triangle through southern China and onto the world market? Increasing amounts of heroin, mainly from the Burman sector of the Golden Triangle, were moving through China on their way to Hong Kong, Shanghai, and other coastal cities. From there, drugs were being shipped to the United States, Australia, and Western Europe. According to narcotics officials, more than half of all the heroin seized in the United States, and as much as 80% of the heroin available in New York City has originated in the Golden Triangle. The meeting in Beijing had been organized by Giorgio Giacomelli, executive director of the United Nations International Drug Control Program. Surely he intended it to be a milestone in the battle against drug trafficking from Southeast Asia to the West. His UN agency had stated a few months before the official signing ceremony in Beijing, Consultations are going on between Burma, Thailand, and the United Nations Fund for Drug Abuse Control in identifying activities to combat trafficking across the common border. The Chinese authorities have also expressed strong support for the sub-regional strategy. In respect of actions to combat trafficking, they express their willingness to strengthen drug information exchange, to cooperate on drug case investigation, and to carry out joint operations. But the signatories of the accord in Beijing may have had other motives. One signer was Li Peng, the Prime Minister of China, who had ordered his troops to fire on pro-democracy demonstrators at Tiananmen Square in June 1989. The other signatory was On Jaw, Burma's Deputy Foreign Minister. Burma's military government had crushed a very similar uprising by gunning down thousands in 1988, a year before Tiananmen Square. Since these crackdowns, the governments of China and Burma have been internationally condemned for mass killings and for continuing gross violations of human rights in their respective countries. China lost its trade privileges with the United States for a time. All Western donor countries cut off their Burmese aid programs to protest the massacre in that country so the May 1991 Beijing Accord may have been an attempt by China and Burma to play the heroin card in order to be readmitted to the world community. Skeptical observers emphasized that precious little evidence has supported the officially pronounced anti-drug commitment of the Chinese and Burmese governments. Asia Week, a Hong Kong-based newsweekly, issued a strongly worded editorial around the time of the Beijing conference.
2: Asians have every reason to share the American concern about narcotics. The flow that travels down through Thailand and thence to the world leaves a trail of addicts along the way, most notably in Bangkok, Malaysia, and Hong Kong. Criminal syndicates flourish because of it. The Burmese government, of course, protests loudly that it is doing its bit, but the regime has pulled troops from the opium growing border regions in order to ensure law and order at the center. The world could better ask whether it has to wait until Rangoon gets its house in order and stops killing its own people before the war on drugs can move forward again. Add to this the continuing accusation that Burma's leaders are knee-deep in the drug trade themselves. U.S. Senator Daniel P. Moynihan has labeled Wu Wing, Burma's number one power wielder for the past two years, as Asia's Noriega. Alas, until there is a popular government in Rangoon. The regime cannot escape culpability, as the world's biggest drug pusher.
1: From China, the French news agency Agence France-Presse reported in June 1990. Trafficking in drugs is
3: one of the sins that the Chinese government has sworn to eliminate in a merciless nationwide campaign. But despite regular patrols by the 1,300-man Chinese anti-drug brigade, the 4,600-kilometer border between Burma and Yunnan is a sieve. Drug trafficking is sometimes so indiscreet that a diplomat in Beijing said he suspected the existence of official complicity.
1: The Golden Triangle is the large mountainous region where four countries meet. Burma, Thailand, Laos, and the southern Chinese province of Yunnan. The Triangle is about the size of Texas, and it's a land of twisting mountain ranges, deep river gorges, and narrow but fertile valleys. Most of the Golden Triangle belongs to Burma, and Burma is a country that has captured the imagination of nearly every person who has arrived at its shores. A hundred years ago, English poet Rudyard Kipling visited Burma's capital, Rangoon, a port on the Bay of Bengal. He described its main landmark, the enchanting Shwedagon Pagoda. Then
4: a golden mystery upheaved itself on the horizon. A beautiful winking wonder that blazed in the sun of a shape that was neither Muslim dome nor Hindu spire. It stood up on a green knoll. There's the old Shwedagon, said my companion. The Golden Dome said, this is Burma, and it will be quite unlike
1: any land you know about. And indeed it is. The Burmese heartland around the Irrawaddy River is the center of a thousand-year-old rice culture. This vast plain, some 600 miles long and a hundred miles wide, is surrounded on all sides by an inverted horseshoe of rugged highlands inhabited by an abundance of non-Burman peoples. To the east is the Golden Triangle, a land where the local peoples have known no borders. The same tribes and ethnic groups have long been found in all four countries of the Golden Triangle. In the green valleys, water is plentiful, the weather is favorable for wet paddy cultivation. Here, the farmers belong to various branches of the Thai group of peoples, who are different from the Burmans of the country's central plains. Those living in the mountain valleys are called Thai in Thailand, Shan in Burma, Lao in Laos, and Dai in China. They are a lowland people, devout Buddhists and industrious farmers who grow rice, soybeans, vegetables, and all kinds of fruit. Surrounding the valleys are the crowded mountain ranges, and a variety of hill peoples live there under much rougher conditions. These include Lisu, Lahu, Agha, Wa, Hmong or Mayo, Kachin, Paluang, and several others. These mountains are some of the most strikingly beautiful in the world, shrouded with mile-high clouds. During the rainy season, they strongly resemble traditional Chinese scroll paintings, but the beautiful landscape is starkly contrasted with the austere life in the villages. The mountain tribes live at an altitude where even dry paddy farming is not practicable. They depend on various cash crops to buy rice from the more developed plains. The middlemen who exchange these cash crops for rice are mostly ethnic Chinese and they live in any of the countries in the Golden Triangle. For more than a century, the only viable cash crop in the hills has been the opium poppy. Traditionally, the opium growing areas have a yearly cycle of crops. They cultivate opium poppies during the dry, cool season, and corn is planted before the rains come in May or June. Between these two crops, most farmers in the hills face several hungry months when the opium has been harvested but not yet sold, and the corn is still too young to eat. The poppy seeds are sown in the rich, well-cultivated alkaline soil in late October, when the annual rainy season is over. They germinate quickly if they have enough moisture from the morning dew. Within a couple of months, the plants have grown one or two feet high, and the lobed leaves have become rich green. Buds appear on the end of six-inch stems, and they droop as if the plant were dying. But as the flowers develop, the flexed stems become rigid and erect, with buds pointing to the sky. However murderous the crop, The carpet of white, red, and purple poppies on a hillside is a breathtaking sight. A correspondent for a Thai newspaper, the Bangkok Post, became almost lyrical when he was assigned to cover the Golden Triangle opium traffic. Instead of focusing on the deadly trade, he began a story with this. The poppies are blooming
2: again in the north. Red, white, blue, purple flowers slowly waving in the light breeze above tall green stems. They stand up amidst green buds. It is one of nature's most beautiful scenes. The place is a valley denuded of trees and hidden behind undulating hills. Hill tribe women in black turbans and brightly colored costumes
1: Weave around the plants. In late January or early February, the poppies are ready to be harvested. The farmers, mostly women, will go to their fields in the morning and carefully cut the pods with a three-bladed knife. A white juice appears, and it's left on the pod to coagulate in the midday sun. In the evening, the juice has become a gummy, brownish mass, and it is scraped off the pods with a moon-shaped iron blade. This is raw opium, and it will be cleaned, heated, and refined into balls that can be smoked. But before then, the raw opium is wrapped in leaves, each packet weighing about three and a half pounds. That is the standard opium packet in the Golden Triangle. Opium is a drug, but it's also a medicine. Opium derivatives include opium tincture for gastric disorders, codeine for headaches, and morphine, a painkiller used in most hospitals throughout the world. Opium has been cultivated legally in places such as Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, India, Japan, and even on the Australian island of Tasmania. Opium also is a stable, hard currency. In a region where people for centuries have moved freely across borders, other reliable currencies have been hard to find. Falling and rising governments have rendered paper currencies worthless overnight. David Feingold, an American anthropologist, has extensively researched the hill tribes of the Golden Triangle and he stressed opium's economic role in a report to the US House of Representatives in 1975.
0: The importance of opium in the economic structure of the hill regions of Thailand, Burma, and Laos can hardly be overstressed. In addition to opium's preeminent position as a cash crop commodity, it plays another related but more significant role, that of a trans ethnic transnational currency acceptable throughout the area. It is possible for an Akka to walk from northern Kantung in Burma to Chiang Rai in Thailand, staying with relatives along the way. He can carry a ball of opium with him, smoke what he likes, and cut off slices to purchase rice or whatever else he might want. Sort of the American Express traveler's checks for the region. If we consider the significance of opium only as a cash crop, we neglect this important function that it performs as a consumable currency, maintaining liquidity in the local economy. In the Highlands, opium is used both for currency and consumption debts may be paid with it, rice bought with it, and it is acceptable tender in most hill villages from Burma to Laos. Furthermore, in addition to the fact that opium is smoked for pleasure by some of the people who grow it, it is also used medicinally by them. Not only is opium prized for its analgesic attributes, but also it is valued for its effectiveness in treating dysentery and tuberculosis. It is hardly surprising that a certain and Sometimes significant percentage of the total crop
1: is consumed at or near its source. Much of the opium remains in the highlands where trade occurs directly between grower and buyer. Profits from the highland trade are important, but they are minuscule compared to the immense profits from lowland trade. This is where drugs enter the world market. The hill tribe farmers who grow the opium poppies are poor and mostly illiterate. For months of laborious work in the poppy fields, they earn just enough to pay for the bare necessities of life. With this in mind, David Feingold, in his 1975 Congressional testimony, commented on the frequent calls in the West for tough action against the poppy farmers.
0: We have no right to ask poor farmers living in remote mountain villages halfway around the world from us to starve their families
1: because of our social problems of which they are ignorant. Indeed, the long history of the Golden Triangle is one of opium, along with the wars, political forces, and economic forces that also spring from the lowly opium poppy. The opium poppy was first discovered sometime in the Neolithic age, growing wild in the mountains bordering the eastern Mediterranean. Ancient medical chronicles show that raw opium, scraped off the pods of the poppies, was highly regarded by early physicians hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. It was known to Hippocrates in ancient Greece. During the time of the Roman Empire, it was known to the great physician Galen. From its original home in what today is Turkey, opium spread westward to modern-day Greece, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia, and eastward to India and China. Opium was first used as a medicine in China. Arab traders had brought it there from the Middle East in the 7th or 8th century. Su Cha, a Chinese poet, wrote a poem around 970 A.D. entitled, The Cultivation of the Medicinal Plant Poppy.
2: The poppy's seeds are like autumn millet. When ground, they yield a sap like cow's milk. When boiled, they become a drink fit for the Buddha.
1: The Spaniards had learned the habit of smoking tobacco in South America and they brought this custom with them to their East Asian colony, the Philippines. Smoking spread from there to China in the early 17th century. Meanwhile, the Dutch in Formosa, now called Taiwan, had learned to smoke a mixture of tobacco and opium to combat the effects of malaria. Some Chinese acquired this habit as well. Gradually, some of those who smoked began to eliminate the tobacco from the blend. Opium as a stimulant had been discovered. Yet, the reasons for smoking varied considerably. For the rich, it was primarily a luxury used in the same way that affluent Westerners later sniffed cocaine at fashionable parties. Cheaper versions of diluted opium helped the poor escape from their daily misery as crack does in Harlem or other ghettos today. Arthur Simons, a 19th century British poet, wrote about his experiences with opium. I am engulfed and drown deliciously.
3: Soft music, like a perfume And sweet light, golden with audible odors exquisite, swathe me with cerements for eternity. Time is no more. I pause, and yet I flee. A million ages wrap me round with night. I drain a million ages of delight. I hold the future in my memory. Also, I have this garret which I rent, this bed of straw, and this that was a chair, this worn-out body like a tattered tent, this crust of which the rats have eaten part, this pipe of opium, Rage, remorse, despair. The soul is pawn
1: and this delirious heart. Although small amounts of raw opium were harvested in Asia by the 18th and 19th centuries, India was the main producer of the drug for international trading. Some of India's Mughal emperors tried to tax opium sales to raise revenue for the state. But no single government in any part of Asia had the will, the organization, or the political and naval power to create new markets. They couldn't internationalize the drug trade on any significant scale. Britain's move to colonize India and other parts of Asia changed this situation dramatically. In 1600, the British East India Company was formed. Its mission was to expand trade contacts between Britain and Asia and between British spheres of influence in the Far East. In the centuries to follow, this trade was pursued with much vigor. The stalwart merchant mariners of the East India Company fought their way into the highly competitive markets of the Orient, followed by the armies of Britain's expanding colonial empire. China, with its teeming millions of people, held the greatest attraction to the traders. It was a potential market for the products of the growing British Empire, but more importantly, China could supply goods that were becoming popular in Europe itself, especially tea. But Britain faced severe problems in its trade relations with China. The British had little to offer that the Chinese wanted. In fact, the Chinese wanted only one item from Britain and from British India, silver. By the late 18th century, every British ship that sailed from India to the Chinese port of Canton carried a cargo composed of 90% silver bullion. By the early 19th century, India faced a shortage of silver. Another commodity had to be found. The answer was opium which grew abundantly in India and which gradually was becoming popular in China. Opium replaced silver as the currency of trade with the Chinese. Flow of silver from India to China was effectively halted, and after the middle of the 19th century, the silver trade had completely reversed direction. Silver was now going back from China to India to pay for opium and tea. India's income from the Chinese opium trade paid for constructing grand imperial buildings in Calcutta, Madras, Bombay, and other cities established by the British in India. An opium tax soon produced more than one-fifth of government revenue in the vast empire of British India. But Britain was far from being China's only opium supplier. Americans also sold Turkish opium to the Chinese. Persian opium was later imported by any trader in a position to do so. The American merchant W.C. Hunter used one simple phrase to describe the Chinese opium trade between 1835 and 1844. We were all equally implicated. The Chinese government tried, at least officially, to suppress the opium trade. Opium was devastating China's population millions of people became addicted to the drug. Opium smoking was prohibited in China in 1729. Cultivating and importing opium was specifically banned in 1800, but these edicts were ignored by all Western merchants. The island of Lin Tin emerged as a center for the trade in opium, or foreign mud, as the Chinese called it. In 1831, the local authorities in Canton ordered all foreign vessels away from Lintin. The local Chinese, called Hung merchants, received this command from their emperor.
2: To expostulate with earnestness and persuade the barbarians that they must not appoint vessels to be opium depots at Lintin, hoping there to sell by stealth. This is a strict interdict respectfully received from imperial authority, and the Hong merchants must honestly exert their utmost efforts to persuade to a total cutting-off of the clandestine introduction of the foreign mud. Let there not be the least trifling or carelessness. For if opium be again allowed to enter the interior, it will involve them in serious criminality. Oppose not.
1: But the ruling Qing dynasty was too weak to enforce its policies. Local officials also were too corrupt to obey edicts from the imperial court in Beijing. The Qing emperors tried again and again to stop the inflow of opium and the outflow of hard currency. China's emperor sent an unusually vigorous official, Lin Zexu, down to Canton to stamp out the trade. Lin demanded that the merchants sign bonds, promising never to bring opium to China again on pain of death. Some of the American merchants signed, but the British refused. When news of the refusal reached Beijing, the emperor banned all trade with British merchants. Lord Palmerston, the British foreign secretary, decided to retaliate a powerful fleet with 4,000 soldiers aboard was assembled. An official declaration said the fleet would protect British interests. British warships bombarded the ports along the South China Sea to force the Emperor to open them for British merchandise, which was primarily opium from India. But not everyone agreed with this policy. William Gladstone, a young politician who later became Prime Minister of Britain, said, A war more unjust in origin,
0: a war more calculated to cover this country with permanent disgrace, I do not know and I have not read of.
1: China and Britain were at war from 1839 to 1842. This was known as the First Opium War and China lost. The victorious British not only forced open China's ports, they also forced China to cede the island of Hong Kong to Britain. Hong Kong gave the British a tremendous advantage over other opium traders. Trade with China became a virtual British monopoly. Hong Kong became the most important transfer point for Indian opium entering the vast Chinese market. By 1854, yearly British sales of opium amounted to nearly 80,000 chests weighing 133 pounds each. China's opium smokers numbered in the tens of millions. This traffic, organized from the British colony of Hong Kong, created some of the largest commercial firms in the colony. It also laid the foundations for many fortunes. The most successful of all Hong Kong opium traders during the mid-nineteenth century were two young men, William Jardine and James Matheson. A veteran Australian journalist in the Far East, Richard Hughes, described their characters more than a century later. They were both Scottish,
3: both religious in the stiff Calvinist way, both scrupulous in financial and personal matters, both indifferent to moralistic reflections on contraband
1: and drugs. Jardine Matheson & Company still is one of the largest commercial firms in Hong Kong. Its present-day executives are conventional members of the Hong Kong business world and few of them like to be reminded how the company's influence originated. Frictions between the Chinese and the foreigners continued after the First Opium War. This was hardly surprising considering the huge gulf separating Europeans and Orientals in matters of religion, law, language and social order. A typical misunderstanding arose in 1856 when the Chinese arrested a Hong Kong registered, but Chinese owned, small ship, the Arrow. The British governor of Hong Kong, Sir John Bowring, threatened to attack Canton to free the ship. His action was supported by Lord Palmerston in London. France joined Britain against China because a French missionary had been executed by the Chinese. A second war was fought for two years from 1856 to 1858. Its final phase saw the Anglo-French forces charging into Beijing, where they looted and burned the Emperor's famous summer palace. China had lost again, and more territory was ceded to the British. The Kowloon Peninsula was added to the British colony of Hong Kong. Much later, in 1898, the British obtained a 99-year lease on land known as the New Territories. Though this was only about 350 square miles, It made up nearly four-fifths of the entire area of the new Hong Kong. Without the new territories, the rest of Hong Kong could not exist. For this reason, the entire British possession will revert to Chinese rule when the lease expires in 1997. But the most important and immediate outcome of the Second Opium War, sometimes also called the Arrow War after the ship that was seized, came when China was forced to legalize opium imports. Leonard P. Adams, a U.S. historian, wrote in 1973. Following the Second Opium War, the Chinese were still diplomatically
3: and militarily unable to stop the drug flow into their country, and Britain continued to peddle increasing amounts of Indian opium. In the peak year of 1880, China imported more than 6,500 tons, most of which was produced in India. However, China began to grow her own on a massive scale in the 1860s. After 1880, the demand for foreign opium decreased, until by 1905, the amount brought in was roughly half the 1880 figure. By the early 20th century, China's annual opium crop was over 22,000 tons.
1: The areas of China most suited for growing the opium poppy were in Sichuan and, most importantly, in Yunnan. Yunnan was then bordered by Burma, by Laos, and by the protectorate of Tonkin in French Indochina, now northern Vietnam. This mountainous region was high enough to grow the opium poppy. It also had been the home of various hill tribes, ethnically distinct from both the Chinese to the north and the lowland peoples of Southeast Asia the poppy soon became a valuable cash crop for these hill tribes. It could earn two to four times the income of wheat grown on the same amount of land. Since the hill peoples in southern China had little consideration for borders, opium poppy cultivation in the late 19th century spread from Yunnan into the northeastern Shan states of Burma. It spread also to the hill country in the northern parts of Laos and Thailand and French Indochina. In London, Christians and liberals argued intensely and emotionally that the opium trade from British India was immoral. Their efforts succeeded in 1917 when India's opium exports to China were banned. But by then, many Chinese warlords were already encouraging China's hill tribes to cultivate poppies so that an annual opium tax would pay for their troops. The emperor in Beijing had been overthrown by a revolution in 1912, and virtual civil war was raging in many parts of China. The collapse of the millennia-old Chinese empire brought chaos and rivalry between several new republican contenders for power. And the seeds of future conflict had already been planted, not only in southern China, but also in the remote highlands of Southeast Asia's Golden Triangle. In the 19th century, Southeast Asia had become an arena of competition for the world's two main colonial powers, France and Britain. In the mid-19th century, the French established a colony in Cochin, China, now southern Vietnam. They soon extended their Southeast Asian possessions to include Annam in central Vietnam, Tonkin in the north, and the nearby kingdom of Cambodia. In the Northwest, the Kingdom of Laos became a French protectorate in 1893. Together, these five territories eventually became known as French Indochina. Vietnam and Cambodia were reasonably cohesive nation-states. Hill-tribe minorities lived only in some remote mountain areas. But Laos was a colonial creation loosely based on an ancient kingdom. Its colonial borders were considerably different from those of the kingdom. Michael Stewart Fox, an Australian expert on Laos, described post-colonial Laos in 1986. The present borders of
2: the Laos state are the product of historical expediency. All cut across geographical features and divide ethnic groups. Although the western frontier follows the crest of the Annamite chain, it divides related tribal peoples who have little in common with either the Vietnamese or the lowland Lao. In the northwest and north, the Lao frontier divides two regions, both of which have a well defined historical and ethno geographical identity. The northern sector of the border between Thailand and Laos effectively divides the Lao speaking people of the Mekong Valley in present day Laos from the far more numerous lao speaking people of northeastern Thailand.
1: As a result, there have long been four times as many Lao in Thailand as in Laos. There, they live among their close relatives, the Thais. And in Laos itself, the lowland Lao have long been fewer than the combined population of the hill tribes living in the surrounding mountains. The Thai peoples, including the Lao, are believed originally to have come from the Yangtze River Valley in China. Almost a thousand years ago, they began migrating south, as Danish anthropologist Erik Seidenfaden explains.
0: From their homes north of Yangtze Kiang, the Thai, due to never ceasing Chinese pressure, emigrated towards the south, southwest, and southeast. And spreading out fanwise, they invaded and conquered the countries of Yunnan, the Shan states, Upper Burma, Assam, and Manipur, and to the east and southeast, Kwei Chou, Kwan Tsi, Kwantung, and the island of Hainan. Finally, they took possession of Upper Tonkin, Laos, and the present Kingdom of Thailand.
1: Aboriginal tribes such as the Karen and the Lawa lived in these territories before the Thai peoples arrived. They are still to be found in remote parts of Thailand and Laos. But these tribes were hunters and gatherers and they never developed cash crops of their own. The opium growing hill tribe farmers came with a second wave of migration from China. This began in the 17th century and still continues the much more numerous Chinese again pressured these smaller peoples to leave their land and move south. While the Aboriginal tribes became subdued by their Thai conquerors, the more recently arrived tribal people settled in the hills, separate from the lowland peoples. Here, the new tribes managed to maintain a large degree of economic and political autonomy. While the lowlanders were Buddhists, the highlanders were animists. They had their own very complex religious beliefs and social orders. Though many people decided to migrate, others stayed behind. That's why nearly all the peoples and tribes of the Golden Triangle today are to be found on all sides of the borders in the area. To the west of French Indochina lay Burma, the ancient kingdom rich in culture and resources, Its majority people, the Burmans, are related to the Tibetans and they're distinct from all other lowland peoples of Southeast Asia. The royal history traces the lineage of the kings to ancient Buddhist monarchs in India. Burma's early history is recorded in a collection of 39 books collectively called Hmanan Yazawin or the Glass Palace Chronicles. These works have never been translated into English. Maung Ten Aung, a Burman historian,
5: sums up the contents of these old chronicles. The first kingdom in Burma was founded by an Indian prince, Apiraja. After his death, his two sons quarreled over the succession to the throne. And as a result, the people split into two groups. A civil war seemed imminent, until the two princes agreed on a contest of strength without resorting to arms the prince whose followers finished building an arms hall during the night would win the throne the followers of the elder prince used brick and wood to build their arms hall and found that it was still incomplete at sunrise the followers of the younger prince used bamboo and thatch and so were able to build their arms hall in time As agreed, the younger prince became king, and the elder prince and his followers left.
1: Whether or not this story is folklore, similar contests and duels between champions often occurred in later times to decide a dispute that threatened war. But the old story also reflects other elements of Burman tradition. The preoccupation with religion and religious buildings the ever-present possibility of civil war, and strife among brothers leading to separation. Burma has always been in a delicate position between the two most populous countries in Asia, India and China. Burma also has its own centuries-old mixture of peoples and tribes. These factors made Burma waver between periods of chaos or disintegration, and periodic attempts at iron-fisted central rule. Only slightly more than half the population of present-day Burma is Burman. The rest belong to ethnic minorities such as the Karens, the Kachins, the Chins, the Shans, and so on. The languages of all these peoples are mutually unintelligible. Shan, for instance, is a tonal language. Every syllable can be pronounced in one of six tones, any one of which gives a word a completely different meaning. Kao, K-H-A-O, for instance, can mean they, white, rice, or enter, depending on the tone. Thai, Lao, Vietnamese, and Chinese are constructed along the same principle, so these languages are especially rich and subtle both in their ability to communicate and their ability to deceive. Burmese, on the other hand, is heavily influenced by Pali and Sanskrit. Both of these are ancient Indian languages although the origin is closer to Tibetan. During the time of the Burman kings, the territories surrounding the Burmese plain were only loosely connected with the central court. But the non-Burman peoples fought bitter wars against Burman kings who entered their areas to search for teak, precious stones, gold, silver, slaves, and concubines. Centuries of mutual distrust and animosity have divided the Burmans of the lowlands and the smaller peoples of the mountain ranges. More often than not, the smaller neighbors would even help bigger conquerors as they traveled toward yet another conquest on the Burman plains. The first strong central Burmese empire reached the height of its power from the 11th to the 13th century. Its center was at Pagan in the north of modern Burma. Hundreds of pagodas are still there and they attract visitors from all over the world. These pagodas stand as a symbol of the might and grandeur of an empire that was eventually destroyed by Kublai Khan's Mongol hordes in 1284. After this conquest came several hundred years of decline, civil war, and strife. The Shan, a Thai people, came down from their high plateau in the northeast and conquered Burma. Indigenous Burman princelings tried to establish new dynasties, and each built palaces, Buddhist pagodas, and entire cities of solid teak decorated with gold and precious stones. In the era of Europe's colonial expansion, it was therefore hardly surprising that Burma also attracted the attention of several European powers. The first European to arrive in Burma was a remarkable Portuguese, Philippe de Brito in the Coche. He had first arrived in Asia in the late 16th century as a cabin boy on a Portuguese ship. But soon he managed to take over the customs administration in Sirium, a city near the site where Burma's modern capital Rangoon would later be built. De Brito proclaimed himself king of southern Burma, and his superior naval power forced all seagoing trade to his port at Sirium. During his thirteen year reign, a hundred thousand native Burmans were converted to Christianity but he displayed utter contempt for Buddhist monuments and relics, destroying and plundering wherever he went. The Burman Buddhists, deeply religious and traditionally xenophobic, condemned Debrito to death. He died in 1613 in Siriam, impaled on a sharp stake by the seashore. Burmese xenophobia kept most outside traders at bay for several centuries. But Burma's riches eventually became just too attractive for Western powers. In 1795, the British Governor General of India dispatched a special envoy to Burma, Michael Sims. Sims reported to his superior in glowing terms about the country he had reached and the people he had met. He was somewhat more diplomatic and less provocative than De Brito had been. The Burmans are certainly rising fast in the
3: scale of Oriental nations. They have an undeniable claim to the character of a civilized and well-instructed people. Their laws are wise and pregnant with sound morality. Their police is better regulated than in most European countries.
1: Britain, a fast-expanding naval power, needed durable wood for its ships, and Burma had vast teak forests, the largest in the region. The British East India Company had taken over Bengal, and so it had already reached the western fringes of Burma. When a minor dispute arose over tax collection in a contested border area, the British in Calcutta declared war on Burma on March 5, 1824. The fighting lasted for two years. Eventually, the King of Burma was forced to cede Arakan in the west and Tanasarim in the east. These densely forested areas were quickly exploited by the British. Conflicts between Britain and the King of Burma continued. Sixty years and two wars later, the conquest was completed in 1885. The British colonial army marched into the royal capital of Mandalay. They arrested King Thibaw, the last monarch of Burma, and turned what was left of his kingdom into a province of British India. The Times of London praised the prospects for expanding trade beyond teak and other natural resources.
0: Notwithstanding present conditions, Burma is already a very much better customer for British goods per head of its population than any other part of India. And in the countries lying beyond, Western China, the Shan states, there is room
1: for an enormous expanse of trade. Beyond Burma, between Britain's Indian Empire and French Indochina, lay the Kingdom of Siam, now Thailand. This country survived as an independent buffer state between the two colonial powers. But north of Siam was an area near the Chinese province of Yunnan including parts of the French-protected Kingdom of Laos and British Burma. This was the rugged Shan country. The Shans first lived in the narrow river valleys, but by the mid-nineteenth century many hill tribes had settled in the surrounding hills. It became one of the most ethnically mixed parts of Southeast Asia, and its remoteness attracted adventurers from the entire region. Sir Charles Crosswaith, British Chief Commissioner of Burma from 1887 to 1890, described this contested area. Looking
4: at the character of the country lying between the Salween and the Mekong rivers, it was certain to become the refuge for all the discontent and outlawry of Burma. Unless it was ruled by a government not only loyal and friendly to us, but thoroughly strong and efficient, this region would become a base for the operations of every brigand leader or pretender where they might muster their followers and hatch their plots. To those responsible for the peace in Burma, such a prospect was not pleasant.
1: While the British were looking for new markets, they certainly didn't want an uncontrollable and potentially dangerous buffer zone to emerge in these Southeast Asian highlands. So, the British extended their conquest to the Shan states and other peripheral areas. These areas were pacified, as the colonial expression goes, between 1885 and 1890. The Shan States' boundary with Siam was demarcated in 1893. Its border with China was completed in 1900. At least nominally, the Shan States had come under British rule. Britain had established a directly administered colony on the Burman Plains, but the Shan States were made protectorates. The British recognized the authority of the thirty or so Shan princes, and these rulers were responsible for administration and law enforcement in their respective states. They were allowed to retain their own armed police forces, administrative officers, magistrates, and judges. The British presence included one chief commissioner in Tongji, the capital of all these states. However, the British did very little to exploit the rich natural resources of the Shan states and to uplift the area economically. Britain's major preoccupation in the region was to develop the Burmese lowlands into a granary and rice exporter for India. They also wanted to log the teak forests of central Burma. British rule in the early 20th century brought unity and peace to a country which for centuries had been plagued by civil war and by wars with neighboring states. Burma prospered to some extent, but the Shan states suffered economic and political stagnation. The Shan states were insulated both by their administrative status and their ethnic differences from the nationalist movement that would later sweep Burma in the 1930s. The British understood how to take advantage of centuries of mistrust between the majority Burmans and the smaller peoples of the hills. For example, on the eve of World War II, Only 1893 of Britain's colonial soldiers were Burmans, yet there were 2,797 Karens, 852 Kachins, and 1,258 closely related Chin tribesmen, and there were 2,578 Gurkhas, Muslims, and Sikhs brought in from India. The Karens and other hill peoples traditionally feared the stronger and politically more advanced Burmans, and now they simply saw British rule as a kind of protection. For their part, the British never tried to hide who their favorites were. Donald Mackenzie Smeaton of the Bengal Civil Service described this in an 1887 book entitled The Loyal Karens of Burma. The inhabitants of Lower Burma have undoubtedly
3: prospered under our government during the past thirty years. They have good harvests, growing markets, and brisk trade. All this they readily allow. But they never bargained for the overthrow of their ancient monarchy. They were proud to know that a Burman king somewhere ruled Burman people and the allegiance of their hearts was given to the king, not to the British government. But the Karen people are loyal to us, and they have proved their loyalty by freely shedding their blood in defense of our rule and in the
1: cause of order. There was another reason why the British let many of Burma's minority peoples fend for themselves. The British simply did not need any large military or governmental presence in their areas. Opium was grown in many minority areas as an important cash crop, but it was restricted to the remote and mountainous areas near the Yunnan frontier, mainly in a district called Kokang. Dominated by ethnic Chinese, Kokang was still part of the British protected Shan states. To the south, Opium was also legal in the wild Wa hills. Headhunters lived there well into modern times, and they were feared by the Plains peoples. Few, if any, colonial administrators ever ventured into the Wa hills, which remained British in name only. Opium taxes produced some income for the Shan princes, but unlike India, the Shan states did not export opium to China. Opium cultivation and trade were tightly controlled by the British authorities under the 1910 Opium Act and later by the 1938 Opium Rules. Opium was a state monopoly, and a resident excise officer was stationed at each vendor's shop to supervise sales and to verify that surplus opium was discarded every evening. A British government report from 1909 stated, Licenses are allotted to selected vendors at a fixed fee,
0: and the profits are determined by the difference between the wholesale rate at which opium is issued from the treasury and the retail price at which the vendor is required to sell to customers. The receipts are growing steadily, but do not
1: yet cover expenditure. So opium use was not that widespread. In fact, there's only one reference to opium in the main pre-war anthropological study of the Shans entitled, The Shans at Home, by Leslie Milne of the British Royal Asiatic Society. No religious
4: Shan takes opium, so it is not openly used as a medicine. But native doctors use it occasionally, mixed with herbs.